Good morning, beloved. It is good to be back with you. You've made me feel extremely welcome. It's kind to be entertaining an old geezer for four weeks. Uh, appreciate it. Um, I have no official authority, but I will speak for Providence Presbytery. Again, extend to the session and to you, a congregation, for your kindness in providing extended leave for your pastor and his wife this summer. That will pay great benefits, not just to them, but to you. And uh, I'm sure it's not easy for a, a smaller congregation to do that, but um, you've done well, sheep, to your shepherd. And, um, I personally appreciate it. I know our presbytery does as well. Uh, I'd invite you to come with me to the third chapter of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, which gives you the blank of the whole book. The theme, there you go. Uh, Jehovah remembers, that is an action verb. Jehovah takes deliberate steps, Zechariah, to Berechiah to uh, bless when Ido in his perfect timing. And uh, the circumstances for the book, books of Haggai and Zechariah are to speak to a downtrodden, discouraged, intimidated congregation uh, who's trying to build literally um, their city and their temple and to restore their land amidst of hostile environments. Zechariah begins with nine visions all given in one night as Spurgeon reminded us visions are windows that let the light in. The first two chapters are addressed to the congregation at large. They are visions of encouragement. Last week we looked at uh, the man on the red horse in a ravine, in a deep valley, a dark place, filled with myrtle trees, small, unimpressive little evergreens, representative of the downtrodden Israelites, who when crushed emit a sweet-smelling aroma. And the man on the red horse, the angel of the Lord, an Old Testament personification of the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, he is promising to revisit his people with peace and prosperity we come to the third chapter and this vision is addressed quite specifically to one individual to Joshua the high priest not the Joshua the well-known Joshua of Jericho uh, Joshua is a, a very common name in the Old Testament means Jehovah uh, is salvation, and um, this Joshua, uh, like Zechariah, is a son of Aaron, is a priest, and is serving as high priest. Uh, give ear as I read to you the first five verses of Zechariah 3. Then he, that is the angelic tour guide that is leading um, Zechariah through these nine visions and answering questions and giving explanations. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, standing before Christ. Somebody else is there. 
And Satan was standing at his right hand intending to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. Is not this a brand, a stick, plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from Joshua. And to him, uh, and to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure garments or pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Our Father, you delight to give to your people good things when they ask. And we would ask this morning that you would feed us well. We would pray that this word of God, ancient as it is, would be freshly relevant, understood, received with joy and gladness, and worked out in our lives. Feed us well, O great shepherd, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in the wee hours of February the 9th. 1709, over 300 years ago, in a small English village, and a fire broke out in the home of a very, very poor pastor, Samuel, um, and uh, Suzanne, Wesley. Quickly, they evacuated their many, many children out to the front yard. The house just had a thatched roof. It was made of wood and it was consumed by the fire very, very quickly. Without the aid of street lights, flashlights, nevertheless, the Wesleys, Pastor Samuel and his wife Susanna, took a head count and they came up one child short. Their 15th child, John Wesley, was not accounted for. About that moment, they saw him standing in the second floor window of his bedroom. A neighbor had come with a ladder and put the ladder. The houses were not as tall as our second story houses in the modern day, but the ladder reached and the neighbor climbed the ladder and literally seconds before the thatched roof fell in and the neighbor was able to snatch John Wesley from the flames. Sometime later, a friend did a drawing of that inferno and John Wesley kept it in his pastoral study all the years of his ministry. And under that painting was this verse, 
from Zechariah 3. Is this not a brand snatched from the fire? That had a very literal, uh, unforgettable memory for John Wesley. But it has an equally applicable meaning to you and to me as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. For the same can be said of us. Are we not brands snatched from the fire? The book of Zechariah, whose very name means whom God remembers, is a book of messianic hope. A book of encouragement given to God's people in one of the deepest valleys. We saw that valley last week with the myrtle trees. Haggai and Zechariah returned from Babylon in captivity along with approximately 50,000 Jews who were brave enough to leave a fairly comfortable life that they had established during their time in Babylon and to accept Cyrus the Great's offer to finance their trip back home and to finance the rebuilding of their city. Fifteen to eighteen years have passed. They started rebuilding the temple, but they soon became overwhelmed with intimidation and fear, with threats uh, from those um, Gentiles who had moved in during their absence and, and they had given up. And so God sends Haggai and Zechariah just two months apart. They were contemporaries to encourage the Jews to put their hands once again to the task of rebuilding the temple. Zechariah is a book for battle-weary soldiers in any age of church history. I want to see the vision itself and then the case that is brought against the defendant and then the verdict. The vision is, again, one of eight or nine that Zachariah has all together in this one night. This vision is directed towards one individual in particular, the high priest. The first three visions have assured the church of Zechariah's time that the God's frown has been replaced with his smile and he intends, intends to visit his people with peace and restoration and prosperity. They may have been thinking, Joshua may have been thinking, and it's appropriate on a communion Sunday, maybe you've been thinking, in light of my sin, how could God possibly determine to do good to me? With my record, how could it be? And so God is going to speak to that and answer that question. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand accuse him. What we have in this vision is a scene of a courtroom. The presiding judge is none other than the Lord Almighty who sees all and knows all. The defendant 
it's Joshua, but he's representative. The defendant is the nation of Israel. You remember that Joshua, part of his ornate vestments, on each shoulder there was an onyx stone, and engraved on those onyx stones were the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, six here and six here. So that wherever Joshua went, whatever he did in his official capacity as priest, he did for the nation. Where Joshua, where the high priest went behind the curtain on the Day of Atonement and sprinkled blood on the Ark of the Covenant, the whole nation went as he bore them on his, on his breastplate of righteousness were the 12 gemstones, one gemstone per tribe so that Joshua carried the nation of Israel over his heart. So it's not just Joshua the individual who is on trial here. The nation of Israel is. And there is a prosecuting attorney. His name is Satan. The father of lies. Except in this case, he doesn't need to lie. He doesn't need to make up any false accusations or charges against the defendant. Their record is clear. They have worshipped the golden calf. They have worshipped Baal. They have intermarried with unbelieving pagans. You name the sin and Israel has committed it. So picture Satan coming into the courtroom with not one briefcase, not two briefcases, but many briefcases full of evidence, true evidence, historically accurate evidence. Revelation 12 speaks of Satan being cast out of heaven, and it says that his daily activity is to accuse the brethren. Another name for him is the accuser. That's his role here in Zechariah 3, and he's, he can hardly contain himself. He's can't wait for the judge, the angel of the Lord, to call, call order so that he might rise and he might read the indictment. It's a long indictment, page after page after page, with documentation, with date and place and time. The defendant is doomed. And the Lord says to Satan, just as Satan rises, just as he opens his mouth, just as he's about to begin his prosecution, the Lord rebukes you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. Sit down. The Lord does not permit Satan to speak. Go with me for just a moment to Romans chapter 8. Certainly one of the most comforting chapters in all of Scripture for the Christian. In Romans 8, beginning at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is on our side, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also 
with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, Satan will if he's permitted. It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Or accusation? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present, things yet to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including the accusations of the accuser will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And while we're in the New Testament, just two verses from the 19th chapter of Revelation. Revelation 19, 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Back to Zechariah 3, not only does God command Satan to sit down and to be quiet, notice, God does not call Satan a liar. God does not say that Satan is bringing inadmissible evidence, and that's why he's being silenced. Remember the children at the golden calf. Later God speaks to Moses and Moses, Moses as a type of Christ intercedes. He offers up a, a prayer. Nowhere in that prayer, we won't take time to go back and read it, but if you have time this afternoon, go back to Exodus and read Moses' prayer of intercession for the children of Israel following the golden calf. Nowhere does Moses waste his breath saying, Lord, these are really fine folk once you get to know them. No. Lord, they, they accidentally know. Nowhere does Moses waste his or God's time arguing that the defendant is innocent. On what basis does Moses plead for mercy? for these guilty, golden calf, covenant-breaking Israelites. And Moses' argument is, you made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in spite of their sin, these are the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you made covenant. And for the sake of your name, keep your covenant. Not because they deserve it. And then his second reason is that if you give them what they deserve, you will give all the world, especially the Egyptians, the last laugh. 
The Egyptians say, yeah, Jehovah's just like every other god. He gets angry and flies off the handle. He makes promises, but he doesn't keep them. He said he was going to take those people to the promised land, but he just took them out to the desert, slaughtered them off. Yeah, that's Jehovah for you. Moses says, don't give the Egyptians the last laugh. But a primary argument. He made a promise. That promise goes back to Genesis 3.15 that although Adam provoked you by disobedience, you promised to send a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That's the argument that is used in this courtroom. When God, when the angel of the Lord issues the order from the bench of righteousness, silencing the prosecuting attorney, it is not because the defendant is innocent. And his guilt is represented in how he's dressed. Again, we don't have time to go back to Exodus 29, I think in the 20s. And you have the description of the ordination of Aaron and his four sons. The four boys just are dressed in simple white linen tunics, work clothes. But their dad, Aaron, dressed in ornate, beautiful garments, reds, purples, blues, golds, linen, around the blue robe are artistic representations of bells and pomegranates, the gemstones on his chest, the white turban with a gold plate across his forehead, holy to the Lord. That's not what he's wearing today. The defendant stands before the bench Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in God's sight. Joshua, representing the people of Israel, deserve God's wrath and curse. And, and Satan has abundant evidence to make that case, but God will not let him speak. For God says, as guilty as the defendant is, is he not a stick that I've snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was standing there with his filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. If you look at Isaiah... 61, just back to the first of the minor prophets, Isaiah 61, and um, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of righteousness, he has covered me with the robe of of righteousness. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you've been given one of those robes 
of Christ's righteousness. R.C. Sproul defines righteousness as uh, what God commands, demands, requires, expects, but I do not have. And so he gives it to me in the gospel of his son. You can't grow in righteousness. You can grow in holiness. But you're either without righteousness or you're 100% righteous. Righteousness is a state of being. And as Sproul said, righteousness is the sum total of everything God expects me to be, requires me to be, hopes me to be, commands me to be, demands me to be, and I don't want to come close. So he grants it by imputation. The thief on the cross was perfectly righteous. He didn't have any time to go to a Bible study. He didn't have any time to grow in grace. But he was guaranteed that he would be with Jesus in paradise. Why? Because he had the necessary garment. There is a dress code in heaven, I always remind my freshmen who are griping and complaining about the dress code. We'll get used to it. There's a dress code in heaven. And if you don't have a robe of righteousness, there's no admission. But every believer from the newest babe in Christ to the most mature are equally righteous. Maybe not equally mature in the faith yet, but equally righteous. And so Joshua's filthy robes were removed from him. And he is dressed in a robe of perfect righteousness and a clean turban is put on his head. Read another quote from Sproul this week. In the gospel, Christ does not throw us a life jacket. In the gospel, Christ goes to the bottom of the sea and gets my dead corpse and brings me back and breathes new life. If he threw me a life jacket, that would indicate that together we could fix my problem. I could reach out and I could grab that life jacket and together, no, no. I'm not in trouble, I'm dead. Israel wasn't in trouble, they were dead in trespasses and sins. But by order of the court, not based on anything that Joshua did, not based on who he was, certainly his filthy garments, representative of his unworthiness. But because God keeps his promises, because of the covenant in Genesis 3, and as that covenant is expanded and elaborated upon, you get down to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 where
Pastor Nathan tells King David that, not because you deserve it, David, but someone from your line will sit on the throne of Israel forever and ever and ever. I often ask my ninth graders, who's king of Israel today? Mr. Netanyahu? Don't just love that man. What? Netanyahu. I'm just going to suck with Hammond. Kind of boring. No, Mr. Netanyahu. It's a prime minister elected by the people. It's not the David. Well, does Israel have a king? No, they don't have a king. In fact, it would be impossible for anyone today because the genealogical records necessary to trace lineage back to David were destroyed in the temple in 70 AD. That's why Matthew takes all that time, 18 verses in Matthew 1. What his high school English teacher would say. Matthew, you don't start a book with a genealogy. No one will read it. How boring. Verse after verse of that, begat, begat, begat. I can't pronounce half of them anyway. Matthew, why'd you do that? That's not a very good hook if you want someone to read your book. Well, see, the genealogical records were available when Matthew wrote his gospel. They were in the temple. He could document that Jesus Christ fulfilled the requirement of the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7, both on his mother's biological side and on his appointed father Joseph's side, son of David. And so, the gospel comes to those who at birth and by means of our own sins are dressed in filthy robes, filthy garments. Satan has an ironclad case of prosecution that would send each and every one of us to hell. Zachariah's question is, how could God possibly be consistent with his nature of holiness and show kindness to people like us? So what we have in Zechariah 3 is an Old Testament three-dimensional flannel graph lesson. I can't use flannel graph anymore. Anyone under 12 here have a clue what flannel graph is? It used to be the centerpiece of Bible school. Zechariah 3 is a flannel graph Old Testament picture of John 3.16. It's the gospel. It grieves me when I hear people say, oh, the Old Testament's just not relevant. All scripture is the very breath of God. The Old Testament is so rich in gospel passages such as 2 Samuel where the shameful, crippled Mephibosheth living in Lodabar, a place of grass, is invited by the king to come to the table. 
so here we are a month later, and we're in another Old Testament passage that bids you come to this table. You don't have a right based on your own merits. Satan has a dossier on you as thick as he did on Israel, and it's all true and it's all accurate. And none of it's news to God. But what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so very grateful that you speak to us in ways that we can understand. You illustrate. You paint pictures. You give us windows that let the light in. Father, we know that our enemy, our adversary, that would seek to destroy us, he is like a lion going to and fro in the earth, seeking whom he may devour. We thank you that our great high priest is our defense attorney. My little children, I write these things that you sin not, but if you do sin, remember you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So it is, Father, that we take our delight anew and afresh this Lord's Day morning. You have made us worthy to come to this table because you keep your covenants. You're a God makes and keeps promises. And for that we are grateful in Jesus' name. Amen.